This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, the video you're watching right now is a production from The Remnant Radio. You'll notice uh, uh, myself, Michael Roundtree, and Michael Miller are not the co-host of this program on Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, we are covering church history. Here on Remnant Radio, we want to cover theology, church history, and the gifts of the Spirit. But none of us are patristic scholars, but we know some. Uh, In fact, the scholars that we interview frequently on church history, we have empowered to make weekly content here on Remnant Radio. So for the next 12 weeks, Josh Hoffert, Father Ron Drummond, and Matthew Escobel are going to be your guides through the early church fathers as they tackle this patristic period of history uh, that we are calling Back to the Fathers. And uh, speaking of Father Ron Drummond, he wears that clerical collar every single week. And I think he needs something new. Yeah. We are entirely crowdfunded. And if you donate to the Remnant Radio, perhaps we could afford to provide Father Ron Drummond with a new shirt. Solid. So uh, that is speaking of us being a crowdfunded ministry. We are. I want to invite you to to contribute. If you've benefited in any way from Remnant Radio's content, uh, two ways that you can do that. You can click on the link for PayPal or Patreon. PayPal is for a one-time donation. Patreon is for a recurring donation once a month for as little as $5 a month. And we provide you with exclusive content that Josh and I come up with as well as uh, some of our other contributors. So I want to invite you guys to do that. Consider donating. And now stay tuned for Back to the Fathers. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. This is our third episode in a 12-part series called Back to the Fathers on The Remnant Radio. I'm Matthew Esquivel, excited to join each of you today. We've got a great episode here with uh, Father Ron Drummond, which I'm excited about. So if you this is your first time to listen, I would encourage you to go back, listen to these last two weeks. Every month we do a theological fight night. We kicked it off with two big leagues in church history, Augustine of Hippo and Pelagius. And then last week we had a great discussion on how to test the prophetic, how to evaluate the prophetic according to early fathers within the church. And then today is going to be an exciting episode that Father Ron is going to lead. But I just want to remind you before we kick off uh, to like and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. We'd love to hear your comments, put your questions in, and then we would uh, um, do our best to address as many of those as possible before the show ends. So I want to kick it off to our co-host, Josh Hoffert over here from joining us all the way from Kenyatta, the great land of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Kenyatta. (laughs) Kenyatta. I'm Mexican. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I'll let you get away with that. Yes. Uh, Well, having been raised in California, um, trying to figure out the difference between how you pronounce some of the French words in Canada and then looking at them from the perspective of the Spanish I learned growing up, 
is like I had I don't know how to say any of this stuff. So Kenyatta might be right. I just wouldn't even know. Oh, I mean, are there any good tacos yeah. in in Kenyatta? No. <laughs> okay. No, it's a blessing. I can I cannot it's, support uh, that country. No. <laughs> yeah. It's but what's a taco is basically what you get. So oh, that's so sad. Uh, okay. yeah. Yes, yeah, so you know I I don't know if anybody out there that that you're listening you noticed that um, Joshua Lewis referred to us in that intro bit as scholars, um, and so I don't know who he was talking about. Um, he may have been talking about my co-host, but he could not have been referring to me. And uh, and so this this is um, you're you very like self-studied though. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. self-studied. Yes, yeah, yes. that's true. But we've got we have um, Matt Esquivel working on his uh, on your PhD in um, early church theology and history, and, uh, and then we have an, a bona fide Anglican priest. So I'm just your average everyday layperson uh, that loves church history. Uh, so anyway, um, we have a fantastic episode today. I'm really looking forward to this one. And uh, it's it's been a I think it's a topic of it can be a topic of hot debate. Um, and maybe not necessarily people are talking about it around their, uh, you know, in, in their living rooms around their fireplaces, but, um, which is appropriate for the name of the episode fire in the right. fireplace. Um, but it is something we think about. And, uh, and so I'm excited to have father Ron's going to be sharing some of his thoughts on this and Matt and I will pepper him with questions and hope you guys have, um, questions of your own. Um, so with that said, uh, the episode today, we're looking at liturgy and spontaneity, those two things. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my background, growing up in very non-denominational, charismatic tradition, um, it was either one or the other. You couldn't have both. And they were almost pitted against each other because the, the valuable form of expression was always spontaneity. And if the Holy Spirit's going to move, it has to be spontaneous. Um, which in, in, and so, you know, that, that was my background and I discovered a love for, uh, liturgical services later, um, really only in the last five or 10 years, uh, has been my experience. And so I'm excited to hear what Ron has to say, uh, partly because in my conversations with some of my Anglican friends, you know, they, Anglicans can run the gamut, uh, in terms of how, how, charismatic so to speak are they with the holy mm-hmm. spirit moving and things of that nature and how formulaic they can be and so we're right. gonna we're gonna poke ron a little bit and we know he's not too spontaneous in in the attire he chooses um <laughs> you know so, i mean very very liturgical might have, very liturgical <laughs> he probably has he probably has multiple black shirts and he just spontaneously picks one of those there you go yeah there you day. go that's but, right uh, <laughs> no well, if, if I can add in here too, Josh, I'm excited about yeah, this. Yeah. Actually, I grew up Episcopal. I grew up Anglican. Right. And so I was very immersed into the liturgical tradition growing up. Um, but then I, you know, in college, I got thrown into these, you know, uh, charismatic, uh, uh, this charismatic church stream and um, and and have even just uh, had, had some part for some time in the Messianic Jewish movement. And so that's, so I've seen, I've seen a whole range here. I'm currently um, in you know, would, would identify and locate myself in a charismatic church. But, um, but this is a question that really I think about a lot. And I, um, so I'm really excited to hear what Father Ron has to share with us about this today. Yeah, so Father Ron, why don't you uh, take us away? 
for liturgy and spontaneity and the prayer and the worship of the early church. Uh, what did that look like? And then, and then um, following from that, of course, we're going to uh, try and look at what that looks like today as well. Sure, sure. Well, uh, thank you guys. Good to good to be with you again. Um, and I think you both of you have already kind of touched on this. Why are we even talking about this uh, on a show called Back to the Fathers? Well, there really is a lot of contemporary relevance to the question uh, because, you know, it, it really can be a divisive topic, uh, liturgy versus spontaneity. Uh, and in, so on the one hand, you have some Christians uh, for whom worshiping and praying according to preset forms or preset texts uh, is kind of a corruption, uh, a crusting over of an earlier and more vibrant spirituality that was marked by freedom and spontaneity. And so liturgy is often looked on with suspicion as lacking authenticity or sincerity, uh, being too rote, squelching the movement of the Holy Spirit, uh, and sometimes even tied to Jesus' warning not to heap up empty phrases in Matthew 6, 7. On the other hand, you have some Christians for whom any freedom and spontaneity at all in worship and prayer risks uh, lacking discipline, lacking structure and order, uh, lacking theological uh, integrity, and also a sense of, of communal participation. So I guess the first thing to uh, kick it off with is to say, okay, what do we mean when we talk about liturgy, right? So liturgy comes from a Greek word, um, liturgios, which basically just means the work of the people. And it's actually a term that appears in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, just before, um, just before Paul and Barnabas were uh, set apart uh, to, for their mission from Antioch. Uh, the, most English translations say, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, mm -hmm. set apart for me. Uh, that word actually is liturgios. Uh, Interesting. And so one could translate it as, while they were in the liturgy of the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit uh, s spoke to them. So, so liturgy was a term that was used for uh, the corporate and public worship uh, of the church. Practically speaking— Wait a second, wait a second. You're trying to tell me that the liturgy is actually in the Bible— <laughs> well, let me think about it for yes. <laughs> Some non -liter non liter liturgical person translated it differently, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, now we don't really know, of course, what that liturgy was. I, I just—it's an interesting point to make that that's that's the word that's used. Uh, because it's, it's not the typical Greek word for worship uh, used in the New Testament, but there it is in that corporate gathering um, in, in the book of Acts, um, and the Holy Spirit speaks into that, that gathering um, and kind of springboards uh, the, the, really the greatest missionary that ever existed. And uh, so... But from a practical point of view, when we talk about liturgy, we're, we're talking about two things. Number one is the whole idea of having a form and structure in a broad sense. The other, uh, the other aspect of it is actual texts, uh, actual words, you know, forms of words that we use uh, when, when we pray. So, um, 
here we go back to the fathers. What what did corporate worship in the early church look like? What what did it look like when the early Christians gathered together? And so uh, one thing that it's important to remember is that uh, to a person, all of the first Christians were Jews, and they did not consider themselves to have stopped being Jews when they came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so the first Christian believers uh, continued the practices uh, of prayer and worship that they already practiced as as Jews. And so the first Christian believers continued to worship in the synagogue uh, and in the temple. And in both of those settings uh, for centuries, the the structure of the worship, both in the temple and in the synagogues, uh, was liturgical in the sense of there was form, there was structure. So uh, when they would meet together on the Sabbath in the synagogue, uh, there were essentially four things that would take place in the midst of their meetings. There would be readings from the Torah. There would be uh, chanting or singing, and the the Psalms provided the texts uh, for that singing. Uh, There were homilies. Verbal instruction was given uh, on the readings that everyone had heard, and there was uh, intercessory prayer, um, a time for intercessory prayer. So you kind of have those those four pieces there uh, in the synagogue worship, which the early Christians continued in. Uh, but right. in addition, so, go so ahead. Well, Father Ron, before you go there, I'm, I'm just reminded of the places you have Book of Acts and the letters of Paul that talks about how they met regularly, the early church, the first Christians, they met regularly in the temple and also house to house. Um, and um, and Paul exhorts, I believe it's Timothy, to do the to give himself to to the public reading of Scripture, and so that was um, something they did publicly. But of course, also you have him talk about Ephesians five of you know coming together with hymns and songs and spiritual songs and things like that, um, and then and of course prayer. They gave themselves to in Acts chapter two forty two to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So there was a rhythm forming, you know, so you're saying we may not have exactly all the texts that, you know, every single thing that they did every single day, every single week, but we did what we do see a very clear format or structure from the first days of the church in the New Testament. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So they, they inherited, um, they weren't starting from scratch. Uh, right. They inherited uh, an already venerable and ancient tradition of, of worship and gathering, and it um, and we'll talk about this as, as we move on. But as as time moved on, those forms began to take more and more and more of a distinctly messianic and Christian um, mm-hmm. look, mm-hmm. and so the uh, the you know the early Christians uh, would would get together on the Sabbath. Uh, with their other fellow Jews. Uh, in, the, in the beginning, there was really no distinction. Just all the Jews went to the Jewish synagogue in town, uh, and, and that's where they had their synagogue service. But the believers, the Christian believers, in addition, like you mentioned, they would gather in homes uh, to break bread. Um, and th- they would share an agape meal. Uh, agape is just the Greek word for love, uh, Self, self-giving love. They would uh, gather in each other's homes for, for these agape meals, which would include a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, so instead of just a cracker and a little thing of juice, they had like a real meal before them that they were enjoying together. 
Right, right. Initially, the Lord's Supper was celebrated as a part of uh, the agape feast, which was literally that. It was a, it was a meal. It was a, a, a communal meal. Uh, and, and you see evidences of that, of course, in 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul is really kind of taking them to task uh, for, for the disorder um, and the uh, the sort of class differences that are taking place. You know, it's like the big potluck. So the rich people had all the great food and the poor people were, you know, st- stuck with, with nothing. Um, so rich people got that... the crispy cream donuts and, you know, the 84-point the <laughs> coffee and everybody else, you know, got got Dunkin' Donuts regularly. Yeah, Dunkin' Donuts and, and the institutional, you know, government urn of uh, of coffee uh, that can had you, been can brewed you, uh, the previous week. Her- can you interpret Dunkin' Donuts for our Canadian friends? Uh, Matthew, go ahead. Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's your it's 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 your it's, corner oh, donut it's, store. It's Tim Hortons. <laughs> you guys know what Tim Hortons is, right? Oh no, yeah, it's Tim Hortons. No, yeah, there you go. Okay, I'm familiar. Oh, yeah, with that Tim was Hortons. almost that was almost Canadian of you. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Father Ron, you said one of the things you said is that they were gathering in homes when they were doing this, right? Um, and so, in we're you know the, the imagery when you say you're gathering in homes, it's conjured up to us 21st century um, Westernized people is we, we think of your typical single family home with a living room and a dining area and a kitchen. What what might were their gatherings? Did they look like they're sitting on couches around a fireplace or do you know anything about how their gatherings looked in that sense? Uh, I don't know a whole lot about how they looked. Um, but I think oftentimes they would gather in homes that were large enough to host a dinner like this. Um, and so they would, uh, you know, they, they would gather around a table that was large enough um, and of course, the practice then was not to sit in a chair; it was to recline uh, around the table. And again, I think what you find in in First Corinthians is that some of the poorer believers were were kind of off, shoved off to the side, while the rich folks were up and had uh, had great great seats uh, up at the table. And so, oftentimes, that would take place like in a courtyard, a house that had a courtyard, um, that kind of thing. And so. Uh, they would do that separately from the synagogue service, of course, because uh, that was their uniquely Christ-believing uh, form of, of worship. And so they would do that on Sundays. They would do that on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Um, and it was also the first day of the week being the day of the Lord's uh, resurrection. Now, uh, one of the developments that, that took place is... Uh, the sort of uh, the rift between the synagogue and the church, and uh, really kind of two two pieces go into this among others was uh, an increased hostility between the uh, non Christ believing Jews uh, and the first Christian believers. Um, the The earliest Christians were sort of bombarded by both ends. They were bombarded by their fellow Israelites. Uh, who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were bombarded by the pagan Romans as well. And so eventually, 
the, the gatherings of Christian worship were completely torn away from the synagogue. The other development is that you have more and more Gentiles uh, coming into the church. And of course, I believe it's in Acts chapter 15, uh, it was decided that no, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You don't have to come to Christ through Moses. You can just come straight to Christ. No snipping in order right. to become a Christian. <laughs> yes, yes, you don't, you don't need to... Well, I won't. That was, I won't. And that was an that was an incredibly heart important circumcision, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's what he means. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a tremendously important development. Uh, yeah. So much so that 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 Paul himself spends a great deal of time writing about it uh, in Galatians. He spends a great deal of time writing about it in Ephesians as well. Um, but essentially, what happened uh, in the in the worship of uh, of the Christian church was that this synagogue service with its scripture readings, chanting of, of singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, uh, as, as Paul mentions, uh, homilies, verbal instruction, and prayers, uh, that was sort of fused with uh, the breaking of the bread, the actual celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so the agape meal and the Lord's Supper piece of it also broke apart, too. And so you had this synagogue service and then the celebration of the Lord's Supper uh, fused together into one service uh, that can be looked at in terms of, of, of two parts. And one of the earliest names for this was the Eucharist, because uh, the, the word Eucharist is uh, just the Greek word for, for thanks. Eucharistos means thanksgiving. Uh, an act of thanksgiving. And of course, that's what the Eucharist was. Uh, it, it was a grateful remembrance of uh, redemption in Jesus Christ. And uh, so, so that's a, essentially, uh, that's what Christian, that, that's what early Christians did as far as we can tell from post-New Testament uh, sources, which which we'll kind of get into those in a little bit. But what you find is that even in the New Testament, there are certain parts of that worship where it was considered important to use a, a sort of sanctioned form, if you will. I'm thinking primarily of uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10. Uh, you'll know we Anglicans typically didn't do well in our sword drills as kids. Uh, so <laughs> You can recite the Book of Common Prayer, though. But. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which is full of scripture, so that's very yes, good. Yes, <laughs> It has the entire yeah. Psalter in it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes, it does. But um, we're... Um, no, it's, it's, first, it's not 1 Corinthians 10. But at any rate, Paul is referring to the Lord's Supper, and, and he says... He says uh, for, for I delivered to you that which was handed down to me, that on the night that he, and so on and so forth. And, and he right. basically says what eventually came to be called the words of institution, which mm -hmm. are part of the liturgical form of just about any church's observance of the Lord's Supper, whether it's a Roman Catholic Mass, an Eastern Orthodox Divine Liturgy, an Anglican Holy Communion Liturgy, or even a non-denominational uh, observance of the Lord's Supper, uh, those words are, 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 are usually always a part of it, right? Where, where you know, he took the bread and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. He took this, this cup as the new covenant in my blood. Uh, drink this in, in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, you proclaim the Lord's death. Every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until 
he comes again. So already in the New Testament, we we find evidence uh, of the fact that that the form and the words that we use in worship matter, uh, that that they are important. And there's a sense of tradition. There's a sense of something being handed down for the next generation to use, uh, unaltered and 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 untouched. So no, I'm, I'm Father Ron. I'm, I'm yeah. Just go ahead. Thinking of, I'm reminded of. Um, the the statement in First Corinthians fourteen, um, where the context being the the speaking of prophecy, the utterance of tongues, uh, in the first few verses of First Corinthians fourteen. But then it seems like just in what you're saying, Paul ties in the format of that when he says, uh, if if the if the um, if the horn or the that doesn't say what is it? I think the word is horn. If it's not sounded clearly, who's going to respond for battle? Where he's making a a call back to how the feasts and the fasts were instituted or were called to, called with um, the proclamation of a musical instrument, and hmm. uh, so he's he's firmly rooting the 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 practice of prophecy and speaking of tongues and that kind of stuff that you find in First Corinthians fourteen into some kind of formalized tradition of it needs to be done within the proper structure of how things flow and are done. Um, anyway, you're just making me think about that. No, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and this kind of gets into the meat of, of our topic when we start asking the question, how do liturgy and spontaneity work together uh, in, in the life of the early church? And so... Um, just like we talked about last week um, in in Josh Hofford's great presentation, uh, we go to the Didache, which is the the Didache is is kind of one of the uh, earliest documents we, that we have that that tell us about uh, that give instructions on how to conduct public worship. Right? It, it's scholars call it a church order. Right? You have all of these ancient church orders that give instructions, and these church orders come from different parts of uh, geographically of where Christians were. So you have church orders uh, coming from the West. You have church orders coming from Alexandria, Egypt, from Syria, uh, closer there to the to the Holy Land, and so the the, the Didache uh, has this to say. It says now concerning the Eucharistic thanksgiving. Which is funny, because that's like saying, uh, concerning the Thanksgiving Thanksgiving, uh, (laughs) give thanks in this way. First is concerning the cup. We give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of your son David, which you made known to us through your son Jesus Christ. Yours is the glory unto ages of ages. Right? That's a set form of words uh, that, that... you know, whoever is presiding over the liturgy uh, is instructed to pray. And then it goes on. Then as regards the, uh, the broken bread, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory unto ages of ages. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and being gathered together became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ unto ages of ages. Um, and then it goes on uh, shortly beyond that to say, and let the prophets give thanks for as long as they want, essentially. 
as long as they want. <laughs> I, I, I like I, things like that. I, <laughs> Give them the microphone until they're done. I, I, so where I, where I did can, the Anglicans go wrong when they decided it should only be a 15-minute homily? Well, the Anglicans went wrong in a lot of places, and we'd have to do a whole other show uh, on, on that. And I might get in trouble for telling tales out of school. Uh, but I, I think that it's... It's revealing because what we already see, uh, and of course, I think the earliest that we could date the Didache would be around the year 60. Okay, so we're, we're less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some scholars say, no, it's way later than that. Um, but uh, regardless, um, it's reasonable to, to, to think that it represents a very early, just post-apostolic right. practice. Yeah. And so already we find uh, that there is both uh, form and liturgy, not just in the structure, but also in the words, but there's also space being given for the Holy Spirit to uh, move and for the gifts of the Spirit to, to manifest, especially, right. like we talked about last week, the gift of prophecy. You know, it's, it's interesting Father Ron, that it's almost the way the Didache talks about it, and really the way the New Testament talks about it, it's like there was an expectation that the Holy Spirit would speak to somebody within the form and structure of worship and prayer. I mean, you have there that there here's how to celebrate the Lord's Supper and then let the prophets speak. And so it's just it's it it's as if it was already part of the culture. And I, I just think it you're, the reference and acts you gave that um, where the word litur where we find the word um, liturgy in the Greek that it was while they were doing that that the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Paul and Barnabas. So I just I just think that's so interesting there that it's 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 that form and structure doesn't um for the early church wasn't a rejection of the Holy Spirit moving and speaking in the service. It was actually the context in which the Holy Spirit would speak. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why uh sort of my initial title for thinking through this episode was Fire in the Fireplace. Uh, you know, an, an empty fireplace is cold and dark and, uh, you know, it might look good, but it doesn't have a, a, a lot of function or comfort. But uh, an, a boundless fire at the same time can be really dangerous and destructive. Uh, and, and so, you know, the early church experienced that fire of the Holy Spirit but not at the expense of the forms and the structures, which they had largely inherited from their, their, their Jewish background. Uh, right. And it, it, you know, from one perspective, it was as, as if the Holy Spirit sort of guided the church uh, in, in this way. And so you move from the Didache uh, back to, or up to, um, uh, an early church father named Justin Martyr, um, which you can sort of guess how he ended his life is uh, <laughs> it's right there in his right. name. And uh, anyway, he wrote a couple of um, apologies. And by apology, of course, we don't mean he said he was sorry for being a Christian, but uh, that word apologia means a, a defense, give a defense, give an answer. And so Justin wrote these apologies really to the emperor, uh, basically trying to give a defense of Christians, saying that they're, they're not bad Romans, they're not atheists, as they were often called, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, Justin's first apology kind of gives us an account, uh, one of the earliest accounts of kind of this, this form. Uh, and again, I'll just share a bit of it with you. It says, 
He writes, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets, are read as long as time permits. So there you have the readings, right? The, or what we might call the liturgy of the word. Then he goes on. He says, then when the reader has ceased, the president, or the, the presider, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So there you have the homily, the instruction. Then we all rise together and pray the intercessory prayers uh, for the church and for the world, for, for kings and rulers and all in authority. Uh, and as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of, of that over which thanks have been given. So he's basically telling the emperor here, here's what our worship looks like, right? He, he, here's, you know, what, what our uh, services look like when we gather together. So there again, we find those elements, uh, you know, very, very early on. I, I think Justin is, is a second century uh, father. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Matthew, our, our true patristic scholar. <laughs> so from the century is correct. So from the you know first century with the Didache on into the second century with uh, with the first apology of of Justin, and then uh, kind of one last example that I want to give is uh, really from the fourth century, and that is in a document called the Apostolic Tradition uh, by a, a Roman church leader named Hippolytus, and uh, again. What's, what's fascinating is that, uh, you know, that when we talk about the early church fathers, it's an incredibly diverse group of writers, not only diverse in terms of their education, their style, but also diverse geographically. So you have some people who are writing from the East and others who are writing from the West, and mm -hmm. Hippolytus gives us a glimpse of what life in the church looked like uh, in the fourth century in Rome. And uh, it's interesting because in, in the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, we find an even uh, more sort of detailed version of the liturgy. Uh, the Didache and Justin Martyr kind of give us a form, but there's still a sense that the bishop or the presider is expected to pray extemporaneously uh, while touching certain points, right? He sort of has a syllabus, but it's up to him to fill in the details. Hippolytus gives us basically an entire Eucharistic prayer to pray over the gifts that includes with it this dialogue between the presider and the congregation. And if you've ever been to a liturgical type service, you're familiar with it, where the presider says, the Lord be with you, and everyone else says, and with your spirit. Then the presider says, lift up your hearts. And everyone else says, we lift them up to the Lord. The bishop says, let us give thanks to the Lord, and the people respond, it is right to give him thanks and praise. And then uh, the, the bishop goes on to complete the prayer. And what's interesting about the prayer is that though the, though the words used differ from community to community, from geographic area of the empire uh, one to another, the themes that pop up in the Eucharistic prayer uh, are fairly common in that we are giving thanks to God for creation. Uh, we're given, giving thanks to God to, you know, for us being created in his image, but we fell into sin, and so we also give thanks that he sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sin, and we also give thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit to sanctify our lives. So 
as the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, is being articulated theologically through the councils, it's also being prayed in the midst of uh, in the midst of of the liturgy. And so, to, so today in liturgical traditions, you have the Apostles' Creed, or more more regularly at the at the Sunday services, the Nicene Creed that's read that deals with the, each of these things. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ His only Son. Da da da. The Holy Spirit. So, what you're showing us here is just an early testimony that this was this was already going on, and it it took on more form and structure. But we we see these same basic things happening even before these were creeds were officially written and instituted into the liturgy. Right, exactly. And and I think it illustrates an important sort of uh, broad aspect of that period of church history in the early church fathers, where theology and doctrine and prayer and worship really are not separate things. They inform mm-hmm. one another, they, uh, they infuse one another. Um, so, now, there's something interesting takes place uh, around the fourth century, and of course, that the big interesting thing that took place around the fourth century is that Christianity became legal, uh, and so of course, that marked the beginning of a whole new period of development in the church. The church is no longer hiding underground; it's state. You know, it's not only state tolerated; it's eventually going to be state preferred, um, state funded to some st- extent. As exactly, well. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. state funded, and you're going to have a lot of people coming into the church for less than noble reasons um, mm-hmm. at, at that time. Now, now that doesn't, you know, you hear some people talk about the Constantinian captivity of the church. Uh, I, I'm not quite there, um, but I think th- I didn't, Matt. Didn't you do an episode? on the remnant radio a while back on that particular topic am i remembering that right um not just on that i probably referred to it you know just in i remember i remember um, something referring to the um something about anyway sorry right right. we've talked about we have talked about it before that's all i'm saying right right Right. it is it is a huge he was as as father ron saying it is a huge shift when christianity is legalized under constantine in 325 and then it's it's made the official religion of the Roman Empire in 381 under Theodosius. So um, contrary to, um, what's that popular book, um, Da Vinci Code, Constantine did not make Christianity the, the official religion of the, the Roman Empire. He legalized it. But that was still a massive change, and it did result in some state funding. But I just, I like, um, and, and so we do see a lot of changes, but what I love, what Father Ron, what you're pointing out is that these, these liturgies and structures that started to get cemented into place, you know, in the fourth century um, as Christianity was legalized and, and eventually official, was already, I mean, the foundation was already laid. Maybe the cement wasn't totally dry yet, but it was, um, but it was poured. Is that, is that a fair way to characterize it? That's a very fair way to characterize it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a great image and a great metaphor because, uh, you know, the cement has been laid and then what does cement do? It hardens, right? right? And and so what we find, uh, especially you know from the fourth century on, is uh, spontaneity in the liturgical worship of the church sort of gives way to these ever developing and ever growing forms uh, mm-hmm. of 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 liturgy. And there are a couple of reasons for that. 
there are positive reasons and, and negative reasons too. You know, one of the reasons that that fixed forms eventually gave way or you know had dominance over spontaneity is is to assure that corporate worship was orthodox in doctrine. I don't know if, mm-hmm. if, you know, have you ever been in an extemporaneous prayer meeting where it's just a gathering of believers to pray, and somebody prays something that uh, you have no doubt is sincere, but theologically you're thinking in your head, mm, that's just not right. Um, yeah, or, yeah, or, like the classic example of, um, thus saith the Lord, when my servant Moses um, led the people into the ark, that just like that, this is happening now. Right. I mean, thus saith the Lord, I made a mistake. That was my servant Noah who led the people over the earth. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. And so, um, you know, one of the aspects of corporate prayer, public prayer, public worship is that it is to be common prayer. Not common in the sense of boring, uh, but common in the sense of communal, right? It's the prayer of the whole community. And so, uh, so between the desire to make sure that 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 we prayed uh, sound doctrine, there was also a sense of we want to make sure that everybody gathered can say amen to what is being prayed. Uh, right. it, then also, uh, you know, a bit more worldliness started to creep into Christianity after. Constantine, because people were coming into the church, not necessarily because they were converted to Jesus Christ, but because they wanted to curry favor with, uh, you know, with the imperial system and and, and things like that. Um, on a side note, the result of that is what would eventually become monasticism, uh, believe it or not, because Christians would, uh, and I know, Josh, this is a big, uh, you know, these fathers are, are uh, of great interest to you, um, but the, the desert fathers, well, how did they get out into the desert in the first place? Well, they, they fled there because they saw so much corruption and worldliness in the church, and they just wanted to be full-on, on-fire disciples of Jesus Christ, and they felt they had to go out into the desert to do that. Um, right, right. Yeah. Is that fair, Josh? No, yeah, for sure. That's totally fair. They were, to them, they were they were practicing the example of Jesus who went into the wilderness for 40 days, or the example of John the Baptist, or, I mean, name any biblical figure, and they saw themselves as fully in that vein, removing themselves from the world, the corruption of... Um, common society uh, in order to find a place of purity before the Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to- a- actually the, one of the things you see in the desert fathers, just to undergird your point, father Ron, is that in, in the, uh, they had a consistent rhythm of liturgical services. It, it depended on the particular, um, the particular format, if you will, or what fa- who, which father they were gathered around. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them were gathered in larger communities, some of them in smaller uh, groups of, you know, you had a father with maybe four or five disciples. Um, but there was always some kind of liturgical expression, and you find uh, example after example after example of spontaneous things happening in the midst of their uh, liturgical gatherings. Um, whether it's a whether it's someone having a vision of a heavenly being or someone being profoundly impacted, uh, there's this there's the story of Abba Moses, Father Moses, the Ethiopian, 
who uh, beats up the robbers who came into his cell and drags them into the liturgical service and drops them at the front of the floor of the priests. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, when they, <laughs> yes, that's one of my favorite stories. And when, because when, Moses, Moses was a, he was named before he was Moses the Ethiopian, he was Moses the robber, very notorious <laughs> criminal who had encountered Jesus. And so these thieves break into his cell. He beats them up, brings them to the fathers in the midst of the service, throws them down. And uh, says, I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> and when they find out that this was Moses the robber, the notorious criminal who now met Jesus, they all became monks um, and uh, submitted their lives to Jesus. So spontaneity in the midst of liturgical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but we see, I, I think we see a good example of this sort of giving away, or this you know, spontaneity kind of giving way to the, the forms and the order uh, from a quote from St. Cyprian of Carthage uh, in North Africa. Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage in North Africa. Um, And he writes in his treatise on the Lord's Prayer, he says, And when, together with our brothers, we gather to celebrate the divine sacrifices with the priest of God, we should be mindful of reverence and order, not forever tossing ill-judged phrases into the air, nor seeking to command our request by bombarding God with a tumultuous verbosity. Because God is not a hearer of the voice, but of the heart. So apparently this was a problem in Carthage. Uh, but at any rate, I, I, I found in that kind of a, 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 good, uh, a, a good example. Um, so, Ron, Father Ron, yeah, I think go ahead. that's just so interesting there. Because you, you, sometimes we think of liturgy as just really long, you know, drawn out prayers. When really, as, I mean, if you go to any liturgical service, um, at least Anglican or Catholic, I mean, you're, you're, you know, that's a pretty tight, you know, <laughs> service time. Um, whereas, you know, some, some other, uh, um, I don't know, I've been in charismatic churches, services go as long as two hours or so. Mm-hmm. But what, what's interesting it, in the early church that we just pointed out with Cyprian of Carthage, it seems that um, the liturgy was actually helping obey Matthew Six, which you quoted at the beginning, chapter seven, is that we're not getting into vain repetitions. Um, that that the liturgy was kind of centralizing the prayer in a way and making it concise, theologically accurate, um, and um, and and kind of. It sounds like from that quote from Cyprian that it was it was helping the church move away from just maybe as as the Didache was saying, let the prophet speak as long as they want. Maybe that kind of got out of control and Cyprian is kind of reining it in. Um, again, not only for just because we want to get out in time for lunch, but it just really just a, a heart of reverence for God, um, theological accuracy in our prayers, um, and and just um, that, as you mentioned earlier, that everyone can say amen to this because they understand it and it's clear. Yes, exactly, exactly. Theological orthodoxy was considered a part of loving God, uh, and, and it was considered an integral part of, of having a vibrant relationship with God. Again, the, the early, one of the great things about the early church fathers is that they, uh, is that they, they kept together what later uh, Christians have often put asunder. Uh, right. So, for instance, in the post-Reformation period, um, the the Pietist movement within the Lutheran Church uh, 
why was there a pietist movement within the Lutheran Church? Well, because the early Lutherans were very much concerned about doctrinal orthodoxy, but it was as dry as sandpaper, and there were people who wanted a vibrant devotional life and a sense of connection with the Lord. So then you had the pietists, but then they would often kind of get into sentimentality and and start to let go some of that doctrinal orthodoxy. The fathers, while not perfect, while not canonical scripture, uh, while not sinless, uh, they managed to hold it all together and kind of hand down a way of life and worship that integrated all of these of these things. So, um, yeah, is somebody going to hop in? You know, yeah, I you know, someone put a question, a couple of questions here um, that I think is appropriate for this moment. Um, someone asked, "Is are so are we saying that?" All churches, East and West, followed this liturgical sacramental structure that was developing, or were there some, um, as, as Justin or Hippolytus or the Didache outlined, um, here it is from B.J. Allen, um, or was there was there some variety? Um, I have a couple of thoughts on that, but um, Josh or Father Ron, if you have anything you want to say. Absolutely. Um, I Yeah, when, when we talk about these church orders like the Didache, or Hippolytus, or um, the, even the, so, Justin Martyr, of course, uh, he was descriptive. Uh, and I, it may have been B.J. Allen as well. Somebody said that Justin Martyr was the first church note taker. Uh, right, you know, he right. took notes during the, and that, that's great. I love it. Uh, he's just giving a description, right? The Didache is a church order saying, do it this way. Hippolytus right. is saying, so we one, do it. One, it, we do it this way. But it's important to remember that these things were not imposed upon the entire body of the church in all places. They came out of specific communities. So as far as we can tell, the Didache uh, came out of a Syrian Christian community. Uh, but Hippolytus, for instance, is, uh, is laying down an order for the church in Rome. So right, it's not right. that all the churches did Hippolytus or all the churches did the did the Didache. Right. Um, I think is what's interesting though is, is the point that the influence that these centers in the early church had. I mean, Rome had massive influence, um, even 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 you know late first early second century, and then Syria. You know, you have Ant the church in Antioch. You know, was a major uh, mission sending center. You know, in the early church. And, uh, and was connected with a lot of, of other churches. So I think it's where I think I agree with you completely, Father, on that these were these were localized, but it's it's likely they did start. Um, they had they over time, at least, um, however much time, I'm not sure that we know, but would would influence a number of other churches there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Josh, were you going to pop in? I didn't want to cut you off. Well, it's it's just ditto. I think the only thing I'm thinking about is I was trying to track down one or two of these statements, but um, in in referencing back to uh, the Desert Fathers, because you brought them up, um, there there was this under underlying, uh, eventually, um, this underlying almost practical disdain for how the church in the city began practicing uh, the services and they would look mm -hmm. at them the the some of the pomp and some of the even saying how they would sing their songs wasn't according to the ancient traditions 
and uh, so they really looked at themselves as preserving those liturgical traditions and the, the mm-hmm. way that the city began to morph and adjust and change, especially later in the fourth century. There's a number of statements that come out from, ver- from some of the more significant heavyweight desert fathers speaking out against the way that the, church, the city churches, as they solidified those things, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, the, as right. the, uh, the cement became hardened, they would really, really respond negatively against the city church mm-hmm. one one right. uh, particular father i can't remember which one it was a desert father even even basically said that they were they were um completely within the vein of the apostles and the the practical church in the city wasn't anymore and mm-hmm. I, I don't you know i wouldn't necessarily right. agree with him in that but that was that was really the attitude towards what what had as that you know the holy spirit part of things kind of seem to wane you know your cyprian quote and um uh, anyway there there was a practical disdain right from the from the monastics right but that was also if i'm not mistaken not only just as far as a critique on the form and structure of the liturgy but just things where where greed and selfish ambition and yes oh for sure and yes and laxity on morality you know started coming i mean just anyone is coming in and getting baptized now and um some are are, you know life change may not be so evident with everybody so so there was a number host of issues there yeah Um, there was they they specifically critiqued how they sang their songs that was one of the ones that really stood out to me (laughs) yeah that was wow yeah yeah well, yeah, I mean, it was a, too much like the pub songs. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, you know, the, the, the Desert Fathers, you know, it, it's only after the fact that we look at them as a whole kind of as a movement. But but the move right. out to the desert was a holiness movement. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. when you when you look at church history from 30,000 feet. You know, you, you find that as the church becomes more complacent, these movements arise, seeking right. holiness right. Uh, and, and seeking to go back to some form of original purity and fervor and, right. and things like that. Right. Um, and yeah, I have a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I have a couple of comments there, too. Just um, I'm thinking about um, the, the Montanists and and eventually what were a group called the Massalians. Um, now the Montanists, you know, were very claimed to be the quote new prophecy that the that the that the Acts two church had been restored via right. <laughs> this Montanist movement. Um, a man named Montanus was the founder. He had two main prophetic ladies. This is kind of um, um, right and left arm there, and uh, and one one early one early church writer, Tertullian of Carthage, became involved with them. So anyway, you did see within them a lot more space in the liturgy for for the prophetic and they sought to carry that on however there was also con- a lot of concern with the montanist movement um, and some of the things that were being said and proclaimed in their in their prophetic services um, and just and there was a there was a spiritual authority conflict there so that's one and then you have the Messalians who were later on um, a group that would reject the, the sacraments altogether is useless. Um, and it was a sharp division between spirit and matter um, that, that we see just go all throughout the Christian tradition is that this idea that the Holy Spirit, you know, we're called to worship in spirit and truth. And so material objects such as bread and wine or 
um, or, or, or um, other objects like oil used in, in the sacrament of chrism, of the anointing, that these were useless. And um, so we do, to answer that question for B.J. Allen, you actually do see some moves within Christianity in the early days um, reject kind of this liturgical, sacramental structure that was forming. However, a lot of the majority of Christians would um, would end up rejecting the rejection of the sacraments in the liturgy. <laughs> um, so uh, um, that you had um, there were, there was a huge concern against this Messalian group um, that they they've rendered things that Jesus Himself instituted, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, as useless. Um, so I hope that's that's helpful there in this yeah, discussion. And and w- with the Montanists, uh, when Eusebius. Mm-hmm writes about them and he he's he quotes an anonymous uh, an anonymous author who critiques the montanist movement but one of the great critiques of the montanist movement uh the way that the early church looked at it uh, and and some of these some of the fathers looked at it their critique was the way they practice prophecy is not in accord with the way we have practiced prophecy. Mm-hmm. That's one of the very first mm-hmm. things he says is it wow. there's the critique of the of the um of the content of the prophecy for sure, but one they critique Montanus because uh, because he's a he basically is your classic example of a gifted person full of pride who grasps for power and position and uses his gift to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what they call him. They call him prideful. It's one of the first things they say about him. And then and then from there is um, it it was essentially, for lack of a better term. Uh, the idea of the ecstaticness of his utterances, and then uh, Priscilla and Maximilian, who were the ones, the women that followed him, the the way that they ecstatically were exuberantly overcome and then kind of um, bubbled up this prophecy wasn't really in accord with the way that they had seen it practiced. And and Montanus claimed direct lineage from um, you know, every one of the prophets in Acts, basically, and then uh, Amia in Philadelphia and Quadratus, the other prophetic figures. Coming back with you. Here we go. I'm just going to pick this back up. Hey, guys, for whatever reason, we are having some technical difficulties. I apologize for that brief interruption. I'm going to toss it back over to Father Ron. All right. Good. We're back. Um, Josh, you were in the midst of a thought uh, when we got cut off. Do you want to uh, do you want to continue on that before we proceed? Well, it was just—I don't know where it got cut off. So um, it was just <laughs> essentially looking at the fact that uh, Mon- Montanus and the two women that were with him were heavily critiqued for not following within the tradition that had been established within the church, and and in one sense the. I, I don't know that this is the language that Eusebius uses, but when you read it, in one sense, one of the authorities to critique him was the failure to operate within the traditional liturgical um, uh, form that had been practiced. Right, right. Um, yeah, but you know, the, the, the people will often refer to the Montanist heresy and really, that's not technically the right term for it. That's, yeah, um, that's very true. Yeah. Because doctrinally, right. they were not unorthodox. Uh, they right. were schismatic more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but again, in the early church, uh, fellowship and communion with the properly recognized bishops and leaders, uh, that was important. It was considered every yeah. bit as important as doctrinal uh, orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Um 
So well, we got I'm, a minute here. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> left of the show. So, Ron, any any other main points you wanted to hit before we wrap up here? Actually, a whole section that I will squeeze into just a couple of minutes. <laughs> All right, you're going beyond the bound, the liturgical bounds. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is telling me it's okay yeah. to go past five o'clock. Uh, okay, good, good. But I did want to make spontaneity. A few, yeah, I did want to make a few points though. Up to this point, we've been talking exclusively about corporate worship, public worship. Mm-hmm. And form and structure in that, uh, but there's an also there's also an interplay between form and structure and and liturgy and freedom uh, within the private prayer or the personal prayer practices of the ancient Christians. And so I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because again, uh, some say okay, liturgy and public worship is, is is great, but when I pray by myself, can't I just say the words that come to my own mind and pray whenever right, I feel like praying? Right, right, right. Of course, right, the great, answer. Great point. Yeah, and the answer to that question is yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, th- there's no text that says don't pray at this time. Uh, th- you know, there's no text from the fathers that says uh, don't pray in your own words. But we do find, you know, that the early church fathers were great catechists, meaning they were great teachers of the fundamentals of Christian faith and practice. They wanted to train up new believers, and one of those was how do we pray. Um, so just early instruction on, on prayer, looking back at the Didache, the Didache not only had instruction on how to conduct corporate worship, but it also had instruction on how to pray personally. And, uh, there's a section of the Didache that basically just quotes the New Testament that says, when you pray, pray as follows, and then gives the Lord's prayer. The Lord's Prayer was beloved of the early church fathers, uh, not simply as a text from Scripture, but as a prayer to recite as is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for instance, the Didache just reproduces the Lord's Prayer and then says, pray in this way three times a day. Meaning basically giving a basic structure. Pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Is it saying that's all you should do? No, there's no indication of that, but it's as almost as if it's saying, okay, these are the pegs upon which you can hang the rest of your your prayer life and your devotional life. And so you have church fathers like Tertullian, Cyprian, even Origen of Alexandria uh, writing treatises on the Lord's Prayer as not only a prayer to recite as is, but also as kind of a theological syllabus of a full, well-balanced prayer life. Right. It provided an anchor point for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, so not only was you know was the idea of praying the Lord's Prayer as a fixed form of prayer uh, found early on in Christianity, but also the idea of praying at fixed times during the day. I think that's kind of the last point we'll make here, since since we're going over, is that uh, it, it wasn't just pray when you feel like it. Of course, pray when you feel like it. Pray, you know, there's that old spiritual, oh, when I feel the Spirit, I will pray. Uh, And no church father would write anything against that, I don't think. But there was, what about when you don't feel like it? What about Mm -hmm. when you're spiritually depressed? What about when you just can't find any words to say? or, Or So, the practice of praying at fixed times was, uh, actually inherited from the Jews, right? Uh, you know, you read in the Old Testament, the, uh, at, at the time of the, the tabernacle and then especially in the temple, 
Every day there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, and not everybody could go to the temple to join in at that time, but they would often pray at the time of the morning sacrifice and then pray at the time of the evening sacrifice. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then at some point you have midday added in there, and thus you have the practice of Daniel. Uh, In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, where it talks about, uh, you know, the king said, don't pray to anything but my image, and he goes out and he prays and faces Jerusalem in the morning, at noon, and in the evening. He didn't right. ju- and, and there's no evidence so that breaking, he just... breaking the law three times a day. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so we even find this in the New Testament. We find examples of it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Peter and John, where are they going? They're going to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Right, the ninth hour is about three o'clock in the afternoon. What's going on at the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon? The evening sacrifice. So they're praying at that fixed time. Cornelius, Cornelius, the God-fearing Gentile in Acts chapter 10 and verse three, uh, he had a vision at the ninth hour. Probably not a coincidence that it happened at the ninth hour. Cornelius was praying. He was praying because as right. a God-fearer, he was, w- was practicing prayer like a Jew. And then Peter, again, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 9, related to Cornelius, Peter went up on the rooftop at the sixth hour, midday, to do what? To pray. He went up to pray at that time. Uh, and, and so, already in the New Testament, you find that practice, and that just continues on into the early church. And, uh, of course, it... it there's a lot more that I don't want to get into since we're kind of running over time, and I do want to take some of the uh, some of the questions. But uh, eventually, these various times to pray became much more than just sort of convenient times to pray. But each of the various hours of the day uh, were at- had theological significance attached to them, particularly with regards to uh, the passion of of. Of our Lord, so Hippolytus, for instance, that guy in Rome, uh, in the same in the same work uh, that he gives that detailed instruction in the Eucharist, he also gives instruction on how and when to pray. And so he says, uh, "Pray when you get out of bed." He says, "Pray at the third, sixth, and ninth hours." Okay, that's like nine in the morning, noon, three o'clock in the afternoon. And why does he do that? Well, he connects the the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, basically with Mark's account of the Lord's passion. Right. Mm. Right. What happens at at you know at, at nine in the morning, ish? You know, third hour he's handed over. Uh, at, at the sixth hour he's on the cross. At the ninth hour he breathes his last. Right. Mark arranges his passion narrative around that, which probably reflects that as Math- Mark's writing the gospel. That's going on already. That you know, practice of, of right, prayer. Right. Um, so, so you you know, you have the idea of of praying at these fixed times with their connection to events in the life of Christ, and eventually, uh, Josh, as you mentioned, with with the desert desert fathers, uh, this grew into uh, a, a practice of prayer that that not only was geared towards people that went out to the desert, but could really only be done by monks uh, because it it eventually grew to such a point that you had seven or eight times a day that you would pray. And then what would you pray during that time? Well, obviously you'd pray the Lord's prayer, but you'd pray the Psalms. There were desert fathers that prayed the whole Psalter 
all 150 psalms every single day. And when yeah. St. Saint Benedict in the 6th century, I think, uh, mm-hmm. came up with, with his rule, uh, his rule for monks has the monks praying the entire Psalter in the course of a week, which we would look at and say, wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh, Benedict was kind of bummed by that. Because he was like, you know, back in the day, the real men were praying the Psalms every day from memory, but I'm going to let you guys just pray the Psalms, you know, in the week during the, you know. Take it easy on you young whippersnappers joining. (laughs) You're lazy, uh, lazy. Yeah, you millennial Gen Zers that are. (laughs) Ron, your your favorite guy, uh, Chrysostom, he wrote 24 prayers to be said each hour during the day as well. Um uh, yeah, you know, I mean that kind of yeah, I, and I, his prayer, short prayers. You know, his prayers are quite short prayers, but they're impactful prayers. Um, I re, I love his collection of twenty four prayers. There's there's even you know fast forwarding quite a bit. We're not talking about the fathers now, but um, in the Russian Orthodox work, the pilgrim, the the way of the pilgrim, and the pilgrim continues his way, uh, talking about the Jesus prayer, um, which I I think you were going to touch. I don't know if we have time to touch on that. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, there's a there's a story in there where he's sent out by the particular monk he's conversing with the Russian pilgrim, where he goes out into the wilderness to pray and he's and he's counseled to pray the the um, the Jesus prayer three thousand times in the day and so he struggles through it and he gets through it and he comes back to the monk and says I said it three thousand times and the monk says go back to the forest and say it six thousand times and. And so he goes back and struggles to say it 6,000 times, and then he comes back and he's like, aren't you so proud of me? I said it 6,000 times. And the monk says, go back to the forest and say it 9,000 times. And, and the whole point of the, of the story, I think he ends up going back and having to say it 12,000 times, is that it's not, about repi- it's not about the repetition, but in the repetition, your heart begins to pray the prayer constantly right. at all times. Right, right. And it's, a, it's, the, it's that discipline of entering yes. our vagary. Getting connected yeah. to Jesus while exactly. you're praying yeah. that Jesus Yes. Prayed. It's the... It reminds me of just, you know, worship, you know, when you're worshiping at church and it's like that new song that you don't know and you got to look down at the words or up at the screen, you know, um, and it's, and, and maybe it's good and it, it impacts you, but, but it's those songs like we were, um, uh, I was at church recently, they sang a David Crowder, turn your ear to heaven. I mean, this is back in my high school days, you know, like everyone, <laughs> you know, over the age of 30 has that song like memorized. I mean, the room right. just like lit up because it was. It was a song that we knew that we sang so much we had it by heart, um, and it wasn't just the memorization can get into rote, but it can also be a real impetus for saying, "I know this song. I know how this song has how I've how my heart's been impacted by this song right. or this prayer," and it can really lift people into a direct encounter with God. Yeah, and that's yeah, Evag- mm-hmm. Evagrius, Evagrius of Pontus, mm-hmm. um, one of those early desert fathers, says. Uh, prayer is nothing else but the ascent of the intellect towards God, and mm-hmm. by intellect, he's not—he's talking about the higher portion of mankind, not your thought process. It probably mm-hmm. uh, Madame Guyon said it that prayer is the ascent of the heart towards God. You know, it's a similar statement, right? Right. right. Um, and and mm-hmm. that's that point exactly. You're you're moving. Your heart is moving towards something because within that format, something significant is taking place. And th- as the format is, like you're saying, as the the memorization of the format can can lend itself to be doing it by rote, but it can also make it so your heart is much freer to release itself to God as opposed to having to focus on what am I supposed to say? How do I say it? And right. um, 
that yeah anyway yeah no i i think that's a great point and uh i guess i'll finish up with this is that what you're you know what y'all have been referring to has been uh developed from the early church fathers desire to fairly literally obey Paul uh, in in first Thessalonians 517 where he says pray without ceasing pray you know yeah, pray without you ceasing okay yeah. how well how do we do that how do we just you know go about praying all the time well obviously we we, we can't have our minds occupied you know our intellectual minds our rational faculty occupied all the time with prayer but we can always be praying from the heart but for them the journey from the mind to the heart was a lot different Furthermore, they had a much different view of what the heart is than we do yeah. today. When we talk about the heart, you know, we're, we're primarily referring to like the feelings, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm, the affect. Mm-hmm. That's not what the fathers meant when they talk about the heart. They, right. they sort of talk about going even deeper than that, the very core of our being that is inaccessible to most people because we don't bother with it. And that was the whole point of these these prayers. You know, Isaac the Syrian gave, uh, I believe it was Psalm 70, uh, to people. He would, you know, oh, God, make speed to save us, so Lord, make haste to help us. And he would say, just, just recite this over and over and over and over and over again. And of course, eventually, uh, the Jesus prayer, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, or some variation of that, right. uh, you know, be, became... Uh, the, the means to do that um, before we get or, to any yeah before we get to any other uh, there is one question I want to address uh, and this was a question that came very early on in the podcast Sarah Kokura which by the way is a fantastic name uh, asked something about um, you know what, what would you you know read if you wanted to pray at, at fixed times or uh, or whatever I'm an Anglican so the form of prayer that I use is the Book of Common Prayer, and of course mm-hmm. there's various versions of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but the you know any Book of Common Prayer that you find is going to have forms for morning prayer and evening prayer, along with biblical readings and Psalms. Of course, you know for reading the Psalms, uh, obviously that's a resource that I recommend wholeheartedly. Uh, but the Eastern Orthodox tradition also has a variety of. Um, prayer books that all essentially contain the, the, the same kinds of prayers from the tradition, prayers for the morning, prayers before sleep, mm-hmm. prayers before mm-hmm. meals, things like that. Um, and right. so, the, so they have sections for like the, the liturgy of the word and the sacrament within that, but the Book of Common Prayer and other books like it, they have daily devotions, they've got morning prayer to use at home or in small settings. Is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. In the Anglican tradition, anyway, morning prayer and evening prayer can be done as a liturgical corporate service in a church, but it can also be done around a table at home uh, with a family. And that was kind of one of the geniuses of the Book of Common Prayer, if I could be a little self-serving with a plug, (laughs) is that uh, all of these traditions had become so fixed in monasticism and one of the desires of the English reformers was to bring back some of that ancient Christian practice to the ordinary, everyday lay Christian, the farmer, right. the merchant, the right. peasant. And thus you have mm-hmm. the, the Book of Common, common Prayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I still I mentioned at the beginning, I, I grew up um, within the Anglican tradition, still have my, was it the 1962 version of the Book of Common Prayer, still... Um, love that. I think it's a valuable resource. And I actually, even within kind of more charismatic Pentecostal tradition, 
Uh, I started adapting it just on my own, you know, and if, if you're from a different tradition, you're not Anglican, it, it serves as a great basis to where you can really start to um, maybe formulate a little bit differently. And, and some of that is just, um, in, for example, in Pentecostal Charismatic, um, there may be more room for spontaneity or waiting on the Lord or, you know, you're not praying. All, and what I love about the Book of Common Prayers, you read those morning and evening prayers and it's like, now you can pray this. Or this, if appropriate, you can pray that. So it gives you a lot of options that you're not really required to pray. But if you, you know, you're at a loss of words, or you just really want to, you really, your heart connects through those prayers, um, it gives you an opportunity. But you also have that ability to adapt it, you know, for your own personal um, use as well. I'd say. Yep. Agreed. All right. Looks like we've. Uh, uh, yeah. Looks like we've come. Ron, you want to you want to wrap this up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I've uh, pretty much just you know gotten everything that that I've on, wanted to say. But I think that yeah, to to close up uh, with sort of you know closing thoughts, um, what we find in the early church, just to recap, especially just after the New Testament period, that post-apostolic period, is uh, that their worship featured both structure and form and space for the movement of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is, uh, I think that's a good thing to strive for, um, I, particularly in our own personal devotional lives, um, that it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It really can be a both and, mm -hmm. and each aspect kind of supports and serves and inspires and informs the other. Um, I think that for me personally, fixed times of prayer and fixed forms of prayer don't really stifle spontaneity um, in the expression of, of what's in my heart toward God. But what it does is it safeguards uh, against prayerlessness during those times when I'm dry. Uh, right. If I have just made it a habit that I'm going to pray at this time of day, um, then rather than wait until I feel sincere about it, I'm simply going to make it an offering to God uh, and say, That's Lord, good. I got nothing but but this. Right. So here, right, you know, right. and it, it helps us, I think, correct an overall trend in modern Christianity, which is, God, what do you got for me? What do you got for me? Whereas yeah. worship is, is really about offering up to him right? Mm -hmm. Offering, you know, something to him. And of course, he answers that by pouring out, you know, way more than we could ever ask or imagine. Uh, but we really are lifting ourselves up to God, which we can do whether we feel it or, or whether we don't. And fixed times of prayer and fixed forms kind of can help keep us accountable to that and encourage us in that direction. Yeah. So really, yeah. liturgy and spontaneity go together like fire in a fireplace. <laughs> well said. Well said. Well yeah. said. Any final um, words, Josh Hoffert? Yeah, I, you know, I final think thoughts, just, not final yeah, words. Final, yeah, final, final I'm not words. I'm about to execute yeah, so. you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there'll be a long shot from uh, from where you're at over here. Um, I know people. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I love that Ron has unpacked the idea that liturgy is not just a development in the early church, um, but is thoroughly biblical. 
and mm-hmm. even so even showing that so we learned obviously the word liturgy is literally in the text of scripture in the book of acts um and and the other things i loved about today's episode is we learned that uh the da vinci code is not a historic document no nope. um or movie yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a documentary either is it? it's, it's not a, a documentary and a fictional book yeah. <laughs> and that ron does not like promoting books Oh, I did not promote books. Okay, no, sorry. We'll fix that right now. Real oh, quick. Okay, okay. There we go. Real quick. From the popular patristic series. This is three books for the price of one. This is Tertullian, Cyprian, and Origen on the Lord's Prayer. Excellent reading about the Our Father. This is on the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. Great translation, great scholarly notes, uh, and interpretation to help explain it. Would strongly recommend it. And as a general resource on this topic, I would recommend this book uh, by Christopher Hall. It's called Worshiping with the Early Church. In fact, he's got four books in this series, reading scripture with the early church fathers, doing theology with the early church fathers, Worshiping with the Early Church Fathers, and Living Wisely with the Early Church Fathers. And those four books are worth every penny that you would spend on them uh, as a really good introduction from an evangelical, by the way, of the life and practices of the, the early church. So there, everybody happy now? Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. That's thank, you. thank you, Father Ron. You've, thank you, yeah, Ron. you've placated me yeah. a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Right, right. And, and BJ Allen, don't you go twisting my words, okay? <laughs> I see those comments. Yeah. Well, yeah, we did not say, we did not recommend the Da Vinci Code. We de-recommended it. Yeah, we, <laughs> unlike, unsubscribe to yeah. Da Vinci Code, but like and subscribe Remnant Radio. Yeah, there you go. The Remnant Radio. Um well, I just, I just, I'll say this too. I just think it's, you know, this is a big question in my mind. I think it, for us as, as Christians, but also as, as leaders in the church, of what does this look like? It, just as, as Father Ron Josh Harford says, it is very scriptural to look at. There is a a form in liturgy that was um, that was that was very present in the early church, and so whatever tradition you're in, that may look different on how that's expressed. But I think it's important. To um, that we're 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 really asking those questions. How, what does this look like for my personal devotional life? How can I get into a form and a rhythm to where that that keeps specific appointed times in my schedule to from my heart to connect directly with the heart of God? Shut door distractions, heart to heart, face to face with Jesus. Um, and then what does that look like corporately? In a way, and what I what I love that Father Ron just brought out so well is just the the catechetical nature of the liturgy, that it is instructionary, it, it, it teaches us the foundational tenets of the faith, and it turns those theological points of the faith into worship, which is the purpose of theology in the first place, is, is unto worship. And so um, that's something um, um, I, I wrestle with, and I think about what does that look like corporately, how do we put that into a more charismatic Pentecostal environment, um, but um, in a way that's really going to get people grounded in the faith, in the scriptures, and in and turning theology into worship. So, um, awesome. Well, Father Ron, this has been an 
excellent episode. I really enjoy yeah. this. Again, this is something just particular, um, particularly relevant just in my own mind and heart that I've been mulling over. So thank you for bringing this to us. And you gave us a lot of great um, great resources and things to think about. So, um, so again, everybody, thank you for joining in with us. Thanks for your questions. We got to a few. Um, if, you, um, if you have more, please keep tuning in to these Tuesday shows. We meet every Tuesday at 4 p.m. over these next 12 weeks. We hit episode four next week. Um, and so we'll be talking about um, more about kind of the gifts of the spirit, the particularly visions um, and the individual experience of those. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about how that looks um, within the corporate sphere of the church as well. But um, what what is a vision? How, how common were these? Um, how do you discern a true vision for a false, false vision? What's the context in which people experience these? How did the early church fathers think about these things? Um, so join us next Tuesday, 4 p.m. We're going to keep talking about this. Like, subscribe, and keep commenting. Send us your questions because we love getting your response and feedback. That being said, everyone, have a great afternoon, and we'll catch you next week at 4 o'clock. God bless. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.